This episode of the Love in Action podcast is proudly sponsored by Duck Creek Technologies. Today's insurance marketplace requires that carriers be faster, nimbler, and more creative than ever before. Founded by insurance experts, cloud-first Duck Creek Technologies enables property and casualty businesses to reimagine, innovate, and continuously deliver game-changing results using technology to fundamentally change one of the world's most important industries. Visit duckcreek.com to learn more. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of business leadership and practical love. No, not that kind of love, you silly goose. Love the verb, love that inspires, connects, and engages the hearts and minds of human beings to flourish in the workplace. Glad you could join us. We're blowing up. People are now listening to us all over the world in 150 plus countries. I mean, I'm humbled and grateful by that. I mean, there are people listening to us right now in countries that I didn't even know existed, like Brunei, Jerusalem. Seriously. Okay, forgive my ignorance if you're a geography buff, okay? And hopefully you can cut me some slack. But I mean, I had to look them up. Brunei is this tiny nation on the line on the island of Borneo, which is surrounded by Malaysia and the South China Sea. Unbelievable. So I'm thrilled. So welcome if you're listening from all the way from Brunei. Okay, my guest today, I've been following on LinkedIn. And I've been following his captivating newsletters, which I'm going to explain in a minute, for about three years. Robert Glazer will join us shortly. Bob is the founder and CEO of global partner marketing agency, Acceleration Partners. He is also the co-founder and chairman of Brand Cycle. Bob is a serial entrepreneur, and he's got a passion for helping individuals and organizations build their capacity to elevate. And I'll have you know, Bob has been ranked by Glassdoor a couple of years back. Glassdoor ranked him as the number two CEO in the nation for small and medium U.S. businesses. He's also a Wall Street Journal and USA Today international bestselling author of four books, including Elevate, Friday Forward, Performance Partnerships, and his latest, How to Thrive in the virtual workplace, which we're going to get into. So speaking of Friday Forward, check your email subscriptions. Well, because chances are you might just subscribe to Bob's inspiring Friday Forward newsletters. I do. It reaches over 200,000 people in 60 countries. And there's a good story here about Friday Forward and the lessons that people have learned along the way, which I'm going to ask him to share. So I love everything about Robert Glazer, what he stands for, his amazing company culture, and how he views business, especially in a remote work setting. I'm honored that he's here and I'm ready to be a student of leadership. He now joins us. Bob, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. 
Thanks for having me, Marcel. We uh, made it happen. Me too. So, hey, we always kick off the conversation with this. What's your story? My story is actually one of probably underachievement for a long time. I think I was a creative kid, entrepreneurial kid who struggled in and just was bored in the traditional school system. I was always told, I think he could do better, feel like he could do better. I really didn't sort of have that. I mean, I got by, but my switch didn't flip until I got into college. I was able to focus on, realize that I liked marketing and business and leadership and dove into those things and realized that like, it just, I just hadn't enjoyed what I was learning. And once I started doing that, I realized, oh, I love learning. And I got straight A's in the stuff that I wanted to learn. I just, I've never been able to pretend to be interested in something that I'm not. And maybe Ooh. that's a good skill or maybe that's a bad skill. So yeah, I mean, once that kicked in for me, I, I actually felt like I had lost a lot of time and, and, and probably was a motivating factor. So I eventually found my way into entrepreneurship where I really belonged. I became unemployable probably in the, in the traditional <laughs> sense and still, still am to this day. And you know, really started building a company. And it's my personality to figure out a better way to do things or sort of challenge the status quo and looked around and like, First, I didn't want to build a company and then and sort of went on this mission of, all right, if I'm going to build a company, what are all the things I didn't like about companies or don't want to be? And how do we actively do those things differently? And that became some of the, the core sort of principles and tenets of our culture and acceleration partners a, a, as we grew. And I you know, started sharing some of those things outside and they resonated. And that led to my night and weekend job writing books and, and talking about some of this stuff with other companies. There's so much I want to cover, but maybe we can start with... Friday forward first, yeah. because that's how I found out about you years ago. So, I mean, how did that start? And, and how has it inspired people all over the world? We might get to this later, but I, I had a pretty transformative part for me was this leadership program I went to as part of Entrepreneurs Organization, a five-day program. And one of the things that we worked on there was our morning routine, like reading mm-hmm. something positive, writing kind of quiet time and thinking. I liked the notion of reading something positive. We were given some like quote books and some stuff that I would describe as a little too rainbow and unicorny for me. Like I like to be like inspired, but not like, you know, with Dilbert posters and stuff like that. So a few weeks into this routine afterwards, I actually thought I'd maybe I'd combine the activities and I had a folder of just some quotes and some stories and things that I liked. So I decided to fire off an email to my team. I think I called it, I changed the name a couple of times, like Friday food for thought or Friday inspiration to my team. And it really wasn't about our company. It was a story or something that I always joke that, Friday Ford is, and I sort of warn people, like it's chicken soup. It's like spicy chicken soup for the soul. It's not, (laughs) it pushes you a little bit to consider something or challenge you or otherwise. And so I started writing that. I started sharing with my team. I didn't know if anyone was even reading it, but I was enjoying the process of thinking about these things and writing about them. And then five to six weeks later, I did start to hear from people that they really liked it. They went and signed up for a 5K or they were inspired to do something. But The other thing was that they were sharing it outside the company. Oh, I shared this with my brother and he shared it with his company. And I was actually at a meeting with a few entrepreneurs and I told them about this and I was sharing it like as, hey, doing this is interesting for your company. And they said, oh, well, send it to us. And I sent it to them and one started his own and the others were like, yes, it's great. We'll just share this with our company. So that made me think that there might be outside value. It was only emails. I I set up a WordPress website. I put the old ones on because people would ask me about one. I'm like, I don't know. It's in my scent box somewhere. And I was managing it all via BCC. So I kept the sort of just text structure of it, but a newsletter system. I thought, hey, what the hell? I threw 300 friends and family on it. I thought I'd get some nasty, like, what the hell is this? Unsubscribe. But 
it just started going. And someone like a month or two later wrote an article in Inc. that this is the only newsletter I ever read. And a couple <laughs> thousand people signed up that week. And then it's just kind of snowballed from there. What's fascinating to me, and, and, and anybody can actually do what you just did and build a newsletter like that. You're not Warren Buffett. You're not Bill Gates. You're, yeah, you're I, just, I am not. Yeah. And so I see you as this regular guy that has passion for empowering people and cultures, et cetera. And you just shared this inspirational message. And now, of course, 200,000 people now are listening. And I love the, the stories that you put in these newsletters are stories of, it really resonates me, like resilience, how yeah. to bounce back from failure. The power of growth. Yeah, it's not. It's not you can do it. Like you know, that's not the. That's the I think yeah, debunking them. One of the themes that I always like is debunking the sort of myth of the overnight success. I think I think it's something we all tell ourselves. It's easy to subscribe other success to luck rather than like hard work and perseverance. We tend to subscribe our own success to hard work and perseverance, and other people's success to to luck and timing when it might be the the total inverse. That's great. Let's jump to your book, your latest book. Uh, it's yeah. called How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, Simple and Effective Tips for Successful, Productive, and Empowered Remote Work. It's a long subtitle, but it's one that if you're listening, you're going, hey, I mean, who doesn't want this? If you're a remote leader, a CEO, et cetera. And I'm thinking if anyone has the expertise to write a book with that kind of title, it would be you since your company is 100% remote. Is that right? Yeah, we've been fully remote. We really saw it as flexible for 14 years. Back to the point we used to desperately hide it from clients because we had like Fortune 100 clients and 10 years ago before Zoom and all this stuff, like it yeah. wasn't, went from something like our dirty little secret to then something everyone's, hey, can you talk to us about this? I mean, I used to have people say it would never work for my organization. And you know, one of the reasons, the impetus for the book, I had been giving a presentation on culture a lot when and talking about some of our elements. When COVID happened, I sort of made that a lot more about remote. I got a lot of questions. I adapted it. People were like, can you give it again? Once people asked me to do the same thing 10 times, I'm always like, that's not super valuable for me. Like, so I went to my publisher and I said, I think I can, this presentation is really popular. I think I can turn it into a book. And we did it in 90 days. And I, one of the reasons I pushed, and it's not really about me or ego, although I'm sure it is, but I continually frustrated by the number of books out there on remote work by people who have never worked remotely <laughs> or who are academics, which it's a great theory experiment, but it's not in the trenches of what does it take to make this work and, and win 25 best places to work awards, as, as one of those awards said, despite not having a place to work. Can you give us a glimpse of the journey of growing a remote business from your humble beginnings? What did that look like? Yeah, it wasn't intentional, as are most great ideas. Like We were in this specialty industry called affiliate and partnership marketing, and we were winning senior business, and the talent was all over the US, and we couldn't there wasn't a logical place for us to find it. The clients were everywhere. So we decided to sort of offer flexibility to find the talent that we need. I think we always thought we would pick a place, build an office, eventually like move out of it. But everyone was like, we had a lot of parents with young kids and they were like, I like this flexibility. It's funny. I used to get asked maybe seven or eight years ago to speak at these remote conferences, like back when it was fringy and intentional, like right. remote or only remote or kind of these vagabond employees. And and I was like, no, like, that's not my thing. That's not, I'm not actually passionate about that. I, our culture has always been about flexibility and accountability. It's about getting the job done, getting the results, not caring that it's nine to five, not that I'm passionate about working from an island or in my kitchen or, or otherwise. So it, then we started to say, well, how do we do this and scale this and put everyone on the same page? And obviously, I think Zoom and tools like that became huge breakthroughs. But 
it's only in the last five years have a lot of enabling tools, right? Like a Zoom or a Slack or a, all these kind of cloud-based HR systems have come along, which also have just made that a lot easier. But I always said, like, I thought we had to do a whole bunch of things well and more intentionally than in-person companies. And one of the core foundations of the book is that is core cultural principles. Like companies that made the shift no problem tended to have good cultures, good leadership, good communication, good onboarding, clear core values, like metrics that everyone could focus on. Like if you didn't have those things or your micromanagement, not trust, and then you went remote, probably was a disaster. So Oof. spoiler alert on the book, like a lot of it is is more foundational around like what's the type of culture that would support this flexibility? It's not necessarily just remote or not remote. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after a message from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Duck Creek Technologies. Duck Creek is a leading provider of core system solutions to the property and casualty and general insurance industry. Duck Creek On Demand is the company's enterprise software as a service solution that's used by insurance carriers everywhere to navigate uncertainty and capture market opportunities faster than their competitors. Duck Creek's functionally rich solutions are available on a standalone basis or as a full suite, all via Duck Creek On Demand. For further information about our sponsor, Duck Creek Technologies, check them out at duckcreek.com. Okay, so you're a high profile guy and I just I'm got a medium a, profile guy. I well, I, I beg to differ. <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, I mean, I see you all over the place. So, but here's the I'm thing. I'm a marketer. You, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> More power to you. Amplify your message through your marketing. But uh, so you, you recently called out another high profile guy. Yeah. Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon. And he's not big on remote work. He called remote work, quote, an aberration that we are going to correct as soon as possible. I don't know if they have corrected that or not or how they did it. But so you kind of called them out. And so I'm thinking maybe remote work doesn't work for them. And some experts say that remote work is not for everyone or every company. But what do you say to that? I say that two weeks later, after David Solomon made that comment, Goldman Sachs released its earnings for the quarter with everyone remote and had the single highest revenue and profitability in the history of the company. So So something uh, is working. (laughs) Something is working. And look, I actually want to be clear with a lot of people. Like, I am not a, we're going to an all virtual world, blow up the offices, like, uh, you know, all this stuff. But this group of mostly older white gentlemen who are sort of declaring like, it's the old way or the highway. And, and there's a tendency around this. Like, it feels to me like 1998 and the internet when people were bragging that they didn't know how to use the email and the stupid web thing as a passing fad. And, I get, and none of those people had jobs a few years later. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but they would brag, oh, I don't know how to use email like that. You know, you couldn't say that two years later it was disqualifying. So look, I think people need to see each other. I think it's very important. And we, we get together a lot as a team and there's a social element. There's specific things that we do about how we build our company and where people can work. We're not just all over the place and fully distributed because I don't think you can build the type of culture we want to build with that. But this sort of my way or the highway thing feels like the you know failing grips of an empire, like trying to hold on to power and not not addressing some of the market realities of supply and demand. These are all bankers. They fundamentally mm. understand supply and demand. Mark Cuban's been saying this about cryptocurrency a lot, but he said, supply and demand are undefeated. 
And, you know, if, if you got a kid working 95 hours a week, head down in a spreadsheet, he might not need to do that from the office every day. I Look, I think that people should get back and meet their teams. And the guy said yesterday, if you can go out to dinner with the CEO of, I think, Morgan Stanley, and say there's some hypocrisy, which I agree. We saw this, I think, with schools and stuff where you say, well, it's not safe to go back in the office. Well, if you're out, if you're saying you don't want to go back in, you want more flexibility, that's one thing. If you're saying you're not comfortable and you're out at dinner and bars, then like, I understand how that's going to frustrate some people. And look, I think, you know, these offices will exist in banks. I just think there'll be more, the demand for flexibility is clearly there. Yeah. And so the question is, which is the bank that's going to say, hey, you can work however you want, as long as you hit our goals and you do these certain things. And is that bank going to get more talent applying there than applying to the old school bank? So again, I'm not a proponent of everyone's going to be remote and all this stuff. I just think the way that they're communicating this is very different than the people that are serving their employees, understanding what they want, rather than declaring an ultimatum. So if you have a micromanaged, top-down company culture, it would lend to... Yeah, if you like a, to walk around the office and instill fear into people, you hate remote work, right? Exactly. So you <laughs> yeah. do, you can't wait. You're itching to get back into the office so right. you can continue... You but know, no one's going to argue that that was a good thing before COVID, right? right. I mean, that, that you walk around with your iron fist and your ruler. And again, some people are just like a fish out of water without... <laughs> being yeah. able to do that. Other people said to their teams, look, here are our goals. Here's our public dashboard. Here's what I'm holding accountable. What do you need? Here's the delegation. And like, I don't care where and how you do it, like get it done. But yeah. look, there are things that, you know, are better for if you're making a pitch to the banks, making a pitch to a, you know, $5 million client, and everyone's in the office, like you should go in the office. You know, I'm not opposed to those things. But if you got to sit down and work on a working capital spreadsheet all day long for 12 hours, do you really have to go into the office to lock yourself in a room to do that? And if it's a Friday, like fight two and a half hours of traffic? Like, I, I'm not sure that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Bring the conversation down to sort of the middle manager level that, yeah. that maybe is in the trenches. Okay. And speaking of fish out of water, right? COVID came, it was a major disruption. So people that were 100% in office were now 100% remote literally right. overnight. Without the and, tools, without the setup, without well, we, the... And a lot of those managers are still struggling to this day. Yeah. So talk to them about what would you say to, well, I guess to kind of encourage them or maybe offer them some advice on how do you now manage a fully remote workplace? Yeah, look, most managers and new managers aren't good at delegation. This is a really important skill in the mm. you know, remote world. But the number one thing that I've found in talking to all the companies and research is, and again, Great companies should have done this before and did the shift to outcome from input management to before, right? The manager's comfortable walking around with the like, who's in at eight, who's gone at six. That's the hard worker. That's a terrible definition of success, right? You might be in at eight and six and the guy, look, let's pretend it's a salesperson because we understand this. You make 10 calls in a day and sell 10,000 or you make 100 calls in a day and sell 2,000. Which salesperson do you want? Like you, <laughs> it's, it, No one picks the second one. So how do we get to clear outcomes, better delegation, spending that time up front? Like, let's talk through this. What do we want or otherwise? But then like, I'm going to give you the rope that you need to do this and you're not going to get it right. And I'm not going to stand over you with an iron fist and make you uncomfortable when you're trying to do it. But like I said, if you can't do it over and over again, and you get it wrong. That's also not viable. So I, I think managers are, are not good at delegating, which means more time up front, more explanation, you know, more clarity so that the person starts on the right path. 
every time a new manager gets in at first, they suck at delegating because they've always been rewarded for doing the work and not delegating. So they got to switch that. Then what happens is what do they do right away? They get a couple of people in, they give them some stuff. They have them go off, do it. They come back and they go, this is all wrong. This is why I can't trust anyone. And, and, and I need to do it all myself. Well, it was going to be twice as amount of work yeah. initially to explain and train. And your standard has to be, it's 85% how I wanted it without doing it, not a hundred percent of how I wanted without doing it. And so these, these are actually skills that you're forced to muscles that you're forced to use when people aren't in the in the same space as you, but you should use them even if they're in the same space. Yeah. Yeah. So delegation, when I do my client assessments to find out, you know, what do I need to fix? And I often find that the lack of delegation goes back to they don't trust the people to do the work. And then the other, the big one that comes up as well is that uh, they are not willing to surrender control. And so they don't want to share their leadership. And it's such a a high desire, especially millennials, for them to want to own their work, have ownership and autonomy of their work. And then so you got the clash of the two worlds colliding where managers are saying, no, I'm going to hang on to this. And employees are saying, well, (laughs) yeah, look, look, Gen X, I think Gen X gets no love and no appreciation in the workforce. You know, all the other ones are talked about and Gen X, just people just do their job. However, Gen X, I would say probably their downfall is that they latchkey kids, super independent, get it done, don't complain, like probably not the best delegating skills, you know, for a lot of people, because it's a, it's a sort of like, if it's got to be, it's up to me uh, yeah. mentality. So I normally think that Gen X does not get much love or respect, but I, I can see how that's an area where then Gen X probably struggles with because they're used to just getting it done and doing it and being more independent. You hit the nail on the head because I am one of the, those Gen X kids. Yeah. So I had to really learn the hard way to kind of like when I ran my company and uh, even when I was an HR guy in the, you know, doing a corporate grind, I had to kind of release control and yeah. kind of push authority down to other people and delegate better. But like you said, you still have to know how to do it. Like, right, Bob? I mean, I call it this delegation cycle. It really is the same every time. But think about it. When you're promoted to a manager, it's a total flip of a switch. And some people don't want to do it. You are now rewarded for how good your people are, Mm -hmm. not you. So you should be feeling that warm, fuzzy feeling when someone says your team is crushing it, not you are crushing it, right? You are the conductor. You're not playing the instruments. And some people actually don't want that. We actually have a path and a role for people to stay on individual contributor roles, because I think a lot of people are forced into this manager role when it's not what they like or do. As a great manager or leader would actually deeply, truly want their people to be better than them. <laughs> An average one, no way. Like right. they want to be smarter and control and they want everything run through them versus like the great leader almost wants to be the silent conductor. And they just, their default is the team gets the credit, I take the blame, which is the opposite of what 90% of the, how people operate today. Yeah. Particularly our politicians, they're all about taking credit for things that, that are like amorphous and then anything that they're directly responsible for that doesn't work out is not their fault. Bob, I can't believe you just pulled the political card on us. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was all parties. That is a equal, equal opportunity problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I want to touch on something else about remote work. So the lines of work and life are now blurred, which is causing this burnout epidemic. Yeah. For a lot of people. So how do you how do you safeguard your own employees from burning out when you know work has to be done and deadlines have to be met? So we train people on this and we always do like it's a big thing on how to create that space physically, mentally, 
how to start your day, end your day. Most of us actually need our commutes back virtually. We need to check in our phone downstairs. We need to wake up, get out of our pajamas, take a shower, have a coffee, read the paper, say hi to the kids, go run for 20 minutes, then turn on all the stuff, which is the equivalent of walking into the office. Because mm. outside of emergency medicine, like nothing is going to go wrong overnight where 20 minutes makes a difference. The difference is once you see it before bed, you know, or, or in the morning, you're, you're sort of hijacked and then you lose your personal space. So similarly, I think you need to at six o'clock, like go for a walk, walk the dog, do yoga, do something, have that. People I think are actually missing that transition time. I used to go right up off a Zoom call into dinner with three kids that were all screaming. And I was just like, ah, I noticed it. So there are a bunch of things like that, that we sort of encourage people to do. I also think it's like, you know, there's a lot of people who like really interesting top performers who have like personas, like on field, off field, Clark Kent, Superman, like you need to have like your workplace where you are in work mode and you stay there and then you step, you don't bring the computer to the bed. You don't drag it to the dinner table because now you're just starting to break down all of those boundaries. The myth I think was that people working remotely did not work very hard. I think the reality that we're seeing is they really don't draw boundaries that people working. Funny that you mentioned, you know, about your kids they are kind of like, here's what I see is I got a very intuitive kid. And if I am not disconnected when I get home <laughs> and put on the daddy hat. Yeah. And I'm still kind of like wired and checking my phone and my email, et cetera. It literally impacts my kid because he can see the sort of that, the antsiness in me. He can see that I'm not present in the moment. My middle son calls me out on it. I'll be like, you're not paying attention. Exactly. And then, so then that affects his behavior because now I'm seeing him acting out and he's bouncing off the walls. I'm like, what's going on with him? And I realized, oops. Yeah. Well, hello, I didn't turn off my phone. I'm not paying attention. So I actually took the advice of Ariana Huffington, who, uh, you know, after she experienced her mental breakdown and and collapsed and all that, and then she started her own Thrive Global, yeah, Thrive Global movement, is to park your devices in a separate room. Literally, I think she has a little like, a little like bed area for she puts her devices to bed in a separate room and doesn't touch them. So I, you know, I transition into my night routine. As soon as I walk in the door at 630, my day's over. So I put my phone in the bathroom and put it in, uh, I, in uh, airplane mode. Yeah. And I'm done for the day. And then I go into my family time. Yeah. I, the- I really le- I recommend leaving it out of, I think just a lot of people bring it into their bedroom and their night table. And I always say like, that is the equivalent of basically being pulled out of your bed you know, into the office too. Like it's just, right. that is also, it's terrible for your sleep. There's just a lot of data to show why that's such a dangerous, unhealthy practice. Like yeah. the, the, the phone needs to like go away. It's, it's, there's a lot of studies that even show if it's in the same room, how distracting it is. All of us can do better at that. Create that separation for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I have increased my uh, my sleep output by about an hour and a half because yeah. I used to be one of those guys that were scrolling in bed before yeah. bedtime, and then I would toss and turn for an hour. Right. And, right. And here's an example: whatever I see before bed often, like you know, ends up in your dreams too. So we had an issue like three days ago where a competitor or someone like said something pretty deflammatory to a prospect uh, about our company, like totally lying. They're just like kind of sore sports. Now, 
let's see, I saw that at like 12 in the afternoon. Like I was pissed. I was about to call people, like all this stuff. And then I went through the hour emotions and an hour later, like I'm fine. I'm rational or otherwise. Had I read that at 11 o'clock before bed, it would have probably ruined an entire night of sleep, right? That is this exact example where nothing good. No one emails you at 11 o'clock that there's a million dollar client going to sign or you won the lottery. But these things are also not life and death. But once we see them, and those of us who are passionate and committed about what we do, it is utterly distracting. And I would have I would have been up for an hour writing the email in my head that I wanted to angrily write. And then I would have had a dream about it. And I, I literally would have blown like a whole night of sleep if I had like read that message right before I went to bed. Okay. I want to transition to, I, I want to talk about Robert Glazer, the leader. So I checked Glassdoor last night, you know, doing a little due diligence on you and a hundred percent of people approve of you as CEO. I mean, that's nearly um, from 200 ratings, a hundred percent. How do you do it? What's the secret to your success? Uh, it's probably not a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that I just try to be, and this is my philosophy for the company and the culture, try to be consistent between what we believe, what we say, and what we do. Kind of paraphrasing this Gandhi thing, like this alignment. And so we're not for everyone. I'm not for everyone. Well, you know, I, I try to be consistent with that. So I think that people, and I spend a lot of my time focusing on developing our people. It's what I enjoy. Mm. There's probably other aspects of being a CEO that I'm not as good at, like doing the reviews and the check-in and some of the stuff that we need to do. But I think what really frustrates people about leader and leadership is just people not being honest or or sort of authentic. You know, it's saying like we're a really value team when you really value individual contribution and, and you're really competitive and you pay 90% of your bonuses to 10% of the people, but you talk about working as a team. Like I think it's just been lucky, but I think I am consistent. And some people might be like, look, I don't like about I don't like what he thinks and what he says and what he does, but maybe they respect that at least I'm consistent. <laughs> and with that, and that I always say like, our company is not for everyone. What I hope when it doesn't work out is people say, look, I just joined the wrong team. Like I'm a running back. I sort of, I joined a passing team and the team said they were going to pass and they passed. And I hoped I could show them that I was a great runner, but I'm just not going to get the touches here. And I need to go to a running team. Right. Like I, I, that is my hope versus like, these guys are full of crap. Cause not, you're right. I tend to uh, look at glass door ratings kind of things uh, with a grain of salt, because sometimes it's the person that you hire is not really a fit for your current culture because they don't align. Their values just don't align with the values of your company. And, but we, were you respectful to them? Like we really don't fire people. I mean, we truly try to like, if it's not working, like, can we help you find a better job? Like now I'm not saying they're super happy in those situations, but you know, at least that person feels respected as a person. I think Glassdoor is actually, look, it's not always accurate, but I actually think it's provided a great level of accountability for companies mm. to not, not do stuff that, that's bad because they know that first thing that that person's going to do is go right and tell the world you know, about it. So yeah. it's created a little bit of a check and balance. Okay. So I want to touch on the values piece a little more and kind of dig deeper because you're a guy that lives out your values as a leader. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of values as a really like living out your personal values and how that impacts your company culture? Yeah, I believe deeply that everyone needs to understand their personal core values. And we actually had a curriculum that I turned into a course where we teach all of our leaders 
how to figure out their personal core values. Cause I don't think you can lead authentically unless you lead in service or values. And a lot of us kind of know them by feel, but they're not like articulated to where we can, we can use them. So that was really the breakthrough for me. I would say 90% of what you would have read on my resume came after that leadership experience I told you about before, after I sort of said, I need to figure out my core values. I need to realign around them because this is the stuff where we're in flow, we're out of flow, we're in alignment, we're not in alignment. So I believe so deeply in that, that I spend time with our leaders, helping them actually figure out their personal core values. That's different than company core values, but there are a lot of similar personal core values in our company, because again, the the goal (laughs) is that if you have good company core values, that people who are drawn to that, they align to their personal values. Therefore, a fair amount of your employees should have, they're not clones of each other, but they should have alignment around those big value things. To me, this goes to what I said a little bit before. It's a little like universities. Like universities all have different value propositions, right? There's the big city, rah-rah sports school. There's the beautiful suburban campus, small school where the doors are unlocked. And it's not that one is better than the other. I think those schools are actually better than companies and leaders and organizations that's saying, here's who we are. And chances are, if you like one of these, you're probably not going to like the other. The person looking at the 500 person classes and then the 10,000 person classes, like the problem with companies is they say so much mumbo jumbo, they don't mean that they're like, they try to pitch themselves as the other school rather than being like, here's who we are. Here's our value proposition. Here's why you would really like working here. That's where the core value piece really comes from. Like we are not for everyone. I think our core values align to about and data would tell you our hiring data, like one to 2% of the population who it's a really good match for. And our job is to find those people. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot because yeah. I know I'm curious. What are your personal core values and what are your company's core values? And I'm sure they merge. Yeah. The company's core values actually should not be a carbon copy because then they actually need to be collective of, of the people, probably when you have 10. So my dominant core value and why I'm doing this podcast in the book is find a better way and share it. Self-reliance, respectful authenticity, long-term orientation, and health and vitality. And again, I'm not doing this from a, a list, right? Like I, to, in order to make decisions on these things, you need to know them. Same thing, we narrowed our company core values down to three a few years ago, which just made everything easier. Because to me, it's the definition of the DNA of someone who's successful. They're not marketing slogans. And if there's six of them, I can say, well, Marcel's kind of five out of six. Like if there's three, like two out of three is not a passing grade. So everyone in our company who has worked here for more than two weeks could tell you our values because they hear them and they see them and they nominate peers for awards for them. So it's own it, embrace relationships and excel and improve. Yes, I love it. Okay. And by the way, our definition of own it, not for most people. Like it really means like, you know, you own it. You know, when something goes wrong, you don't look to blame other people or talk about all the external factors. Like our people will be like, I should have done a better job at this. And we're not looking at them to take blame. It's just a culture to our excel and improve. Like, what did we learn? Share it with everyone else. Just own it and move on and get better. Like, you know, the people that don't work well in our environment are ones who really need, look, we're, we're an agency, we're fast paced, we're remote. If you need consensus on everything, and to really think it through and all this stuff, like it, that person does not work. Own it means like make the decision, go forward with it, be confident backing it up. There is actually a company culture that works better for those people, right? Like maybe a nuclear power plant, like everything should be by consensus, discussed ad nauseum, you know, team-based. 
it's not the dynamic of actually our, our engagement with our clients and, and what the work actually requires. So mm-hmm. if you're working from home and you're the type of person who needs to ask a hundred people something before you move forward on it, you won't like working here. Now, I was going to say that if you make the wrong mistake, you own it yeah. by admitting that you made a mistake and then you correct that. It's accountability. Yeah. I mean, we have a process, we have a debrief process, kind of like the military. So when a certain mistake is made, you document it, you write up like what you learned from it, what everyone else could learn from it going forward, and then you share it with everyone on the leadership team. So it actually covers all the core values, embrace relationships, excel and improve, own it. And I can tell whether people are going to work here after I've seen their first one in a year, because I've seen ones where like the client goes bankrupt and someone's writing it up and we got, you know, lost $20,000 $20,000 and someone's writing it up and they're like, look, you know, they moved some meetings. There were, they did some things. These were flagged. Like these are the things that we could have seen and things that like, again, really like it was an out of the blue bankruptcy, but they're trying to look at like, if we had to say like, what could we learn from it? What could we learn from it? Like not a fault. And then I've seen other people's and I've said it, that's the team. I'm like, this person won't be here in a year. It's just where it really was our fault, but the write-up seems to blame all external factors. It's not, the write-up is not about blame. If you don't understand, the write-up is about what did we learn and how can you help someone on the team not be in the same situation in the future, right? But that requires some ownership of the situation. Okay. So speaking of mistakes, I'm curious early on, what were some of the biggest mistakes that you made as you walked through this journey of developing your company culture? I mean, what did you learn? I made the same mistake over and over again. And I think it's because of my kind of desire to want to invest in people and stuff, but just waiting too long to make changes that you just know you need to make. Like what? Mostly people. (laughs) Things that have stopped stopped working, people that have stopped working. The trick, like I am someone who sort of thinks in the future. Like I'm vision-oriented. I'm always working on our future plan. I can see stuff around the bend a little bit before it happens. And I think sometimes it's a little jarring to people to say, look, like this isn't going to work. And they're like, what? It's working fine today. But I can I can see the I'm good at spotting the like I can see all the dots coming together of why this is headed towards off a cliff. But right now, people just see that the train's going at 60 miles an hour. And every time I think it's easier not to make a hard decision and to just put it off, it actually just makes it worse. And I'm not I still haven't learned that lesson, but it is. And this goes to our sort of culture of respectful authenticity and what we're trying to do. We're trying to be supportive. We're trying to tell people the truth, but we're also trying to have our honest conversations. Like, Marcel, you're a great salesperson, but like we're doubling next year and, and you are not the manager of our sales team. So if you want to be a rep, that's great. If you are waiting for that seat, it's not going to be yours. So like, and we another another objection. So like, let's have this conversation now. So we're not at an impasse in a year. Those are the conversations that don't happen enough. And if you think you can do it and want to do it somewhere else, uh, we'll help you find that job, but it's not here. I think they're just, particularly when you're growing 30, 40% a year for a while, like, and, and it's serv- like stuff is going to break and you need different people at different stages. And I see this new, new, the biggest mistake that new managers do is, is leaving way too long of a rope for people to, and giving them second and third chances when, if you ask them in their heart of hearts, if you phrase it like, would you bet your job on this person doing their job well? They would be like, well, no, but no, no, And you're like, well, it's probably not going to work. Bob, speak to the CEO that's perhaps listening who believes in all of this and, yeah. and they want to maybe change their culture or would just lay down a strategy to build a world-class organization. They want to be known as a best place yeah. to work. 
what would you tell them? I mean, is there a good starting point? Yeah, I get a mirror, and this is what <laughs> back to, and I would, I would do the core value work, and you can take my course or do it elsewhere. I couldn't find it elsewhere, which is why I pulled it all this training together in a course. And I would figure out your personal core values. I would figure then out what your organization want. I would be radically honest with the world about that and get the right people on the bus. I can't tell you, like I said, if you're a hyper-competitive college athlete that wants a win-lose culture, you'll get plenty of those people to come on your team. Don't say crap like, we value teamwork and everyone's... No, we value winning and losing. Like, And we're going after a market where they're winner and losers and we're going to grow 50% a year. Like, I think people spend so much time saying stuff that they think people want to hear rather than figuring out what's true for them, saying it honestly, that college that says we're the 500-person rural university for people who want a 500-person rural university. If you want a city school, we're not your school. I think that is the biggest failure. If, if you want just, it's so much easier than back to the, what you actually think is what you say and is what you do. It doesn't mean that it appeals to everyone. It just means that those things are are consistent. I think it's that difficult and that simple at the same time. All right. Tell us a little bit about the new online course you got. I know that you know audio and how people learn is changing. So I record a new course tied to the book, sort of a companion piece that walks you through the book with more visual and the core pieces. Think of it as sort of like a visual audio book version of the content that's a little abbreviated that also works better if you're trying to teach it or in a group setting. So yeah, I mean, there's so many modalities these days. You can read the book, you can listen to it on audiobook, or there's a course version of it as well. Fantastic. As we wind down here, we have a traditional question on the show. I personally believe that uh, leadership is an expression of love. Before we wrap up, I want you to make the link between leadership in this post-pandemic age to practical love and care. Love that you know inspires and engages people to go above and beyond in the workplace. So the question, how does a leader love well day in and day out? I mean, I think empathy is part of a leadership's role right now and after the pandemic. And so you have, I think one of the most challenging things for leaders in the last 12 months is just being given circumstances that have are impacting work that has nothing to do with work, right? Someone's got two kids at home, you know, running around five and under and lost their daycare or their husband's out of a job or all of these things where they're impacting the work environment. Any leader who, who doesn't really care about the welfare of people is, <laughs> that's kind of a challenging definition of leader in 2021, really understanding where people are, what they need. Look, this has to be balanced with, because as I've said, a lot of people in the last year, the answer is they want 100% of the pay or for 25% for of the work because there's a lot going on. Well, that would almost put any company out of business and then they wouldn't have any job to come back to. So having these open discussions, under having your people understand that you care about their well-being, but there is also some business realities. I think, I think that's the biggest opportunity. I think that's been like one of the hardest things that people have had to juggle with because... Prior to like, if people used to be stressed at our company, we, we dig into it and it was a business problem. Well, we have too many reports at the end of the month. So we figured out how to solve the business problem. A lot of the stress in the last year and the things that people are hurting from have nothing to do with actually what's going on inside the business. And that's an entirely new leadership challenge for most people. All right. Well, we end our episodes with two questions. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Yeah, I think what's what's tugging on my heart is sort of a continuation of that. I think there's a lot of people 
still struggling. I think coming out of this, they're burnt out. You know, there's some mental health challenges. And I think trying to figure out how to navigate all of this and how to get that win-win of productive, profitable workplace and healthy, engaged worker. I actually thought it would just get better now that everything has, has opened up. I think there's still a pretty big hangover effect. And, and I, I, I find myself and all of us having to lean in a lot on the side of the equation. Ooh. So it's it's top of mind because I think it's the number one thing everyone's talking about. In fact, I think now that everything's opening and they're back to all the sports and this and games and whatever, I, I, they are even like, they just have, they feel like they haven't had a break and we can't hit pause. I mean, Adam Grant said, well, everyone should have a month off after the pandemic. And like, that's great. And I agree with that. But like, who's going to pay for that? Right. <laughs> Government's already printed a lot of money. Like, I think they're just some realities where a tech, we're in client services. Like, we cannot tell our clients that we're going home for a month. If you're a manufacturer, you could make that choice. You could say, look, we're just not producing surfboards for a month and whatever. But it's particularly tricky as a client service business. There's just certain things that you cannot do or you won't have any clients. All right. Well, you get to close us out your way. Is there one thing? Maybe a, a key takeaway that you'd like to bring us home with? Yeah, I think some of this stuff, you know, sounds overwhelming to people. I always find it's it's not about committing to make some huge change. On January 1st, I'm more likely to believe in the person that starts just doing one or two little things well than the person who says they're going to change all of their lives and lose 30 pounds and all that stuff. So in a lot of the stuff that I do, I and even my framework of capacity building from the book Elevate, I always say like, just do one, the 1% rule, do one thing better, one thing better, 1% a day in that direction, rather than stressing yourself out that it's this huge kind of wholesale changes that you have to make. And, and I think you'll get better, better outcomes. So again, if you haven't figured out the model for what your return to work is, like do something every day towards that. Like maybe that takes the pressure off the decision towards like, ask your employees, take it to a survey tomorrow, like look at something else, build in a pit, like start to just do the work rather than get stressed about the actual decision. All right. Well, you got so many places that people can go to to yeah. find you and connect with you, but point them to the ones that you want them to go to. Where would that be? The good news is it's all in one place now. So Robert okay. Glazer, G-L-A-Z-E-R.com. On there, you can sign up for Friday Forward. You can see the Core Values course, the Remote Work course, books, everything. It's all right there. Fantastic. Appreciate your time, sir. It's been a blast hanging out with you. Thank you very much. Glad we uh, finally made it happen and hope to see you in person one of these days. Absolutely. All All right. right. So you can join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag love in action podcast. And uh, hey, look for my show notes on my website. I'm going to include Bob's resources and website and all that. And you can find it on my website, marcelschwantes.com. I want to thank my sponsor today for making this episode possible, Duck Creek Technologies. Built for insurance, by insurance, Duck Creek offers the vision and tools you need to drive your business in 2021 and beyond. Check them out at duckcreek.com. I'm coming right back with my one action item. There are so many of, but I'm going to pick one out just for you based on this conversation with Bob Glazer, that one thing that you must start doing today to make you a better leader. Bob left us with plenty to think about, but there is one idea that really stuck out for me. 
So I'm going to recommend this as your action item. Bob's philosophy on maintaining his great company culture is to be consistent between what we believe, what we say, and what we do. So think about that for your company. Ask yourself, are we really consistent with what we believe, what we say, and what we do? There's got to be alignment in your decisions, your strategy, your hiring, your retention. For example, Bob's company is big on owning it. That's a core value and an expectation for coming to work. You own your decisions, you learn from your mistakes, you embrace change. There's ownership and accountability there for yourself and to your teammates. No egos, no finger pointings, you own it. And he's consistent with that because, well, it's a company core value. So when you hire people or promote people, are you aligning those decisions around your core values? Because if you say you value teamwork or collaboration, but you're rewarding individual contributors and maybe giving credit or bumping up the salaries of your rock star employees, you're not aligned with your company core values and you're probably going to lose people. So there you have it. That wraps it up. Thanks again, Love and Action Tribe, for joining the conversation. Please spread the love by sharing this episode. And finally, if you or your company would like to help us spread this movement, we're always looking for business sponsors to help us grow. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the Love in Action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.